I recently went uh, to the doctor for my annual physical. And as you know, they look at all kinds of things to check if you are healthy or if there's something wrong with you. They, they, they get your weight. Can I just say that the scales of the doctor's office are skewed? Um, they, they take your height. I don't know why they take my height. They expected me to grow next time I see them. They take my blood pressure. They take my body temperature. They take my blood to check my cholesterol and my glucose. They check my lungs and they ask me all kinds of questions uh, about my evenings and my days and, and all of that. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that at my age that uh, the doctor said that I'm doing pretty good, that I'm pretty healthy, that there's really nothing wrong with me. Uh, the things that they monitor in terms of liver enzymes and cholesterol in my case are all under control. But he did have two recommendations for me. The first one is that I would lose weight. I know that may come as a surprise to you, but uh, uh, that I would lose weight and that I would exercise more to bring my, my bad cholesterol, my good cholesterol up or something like that. And, and I agreed with the doctor, I need to lose weight and I need to exercise more because I want to be healthy. I want to be in the best health possible because when, I understand that, that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that when I keep my physical body healthy, I can serve God better. I, I can be present in ministry. I, I can do the things that I, that I love to do. I can watch my grandson grow up and, and see him hopefully go to high school and college. I want to be there. And so I'm going to make sure that my physical health is at its best within my ability. And I feel the same thing about my spiritual health. I want my spiritual health to be at its best. I, I want to be spiritually healthy. Here at Calvary, we talk about being healthy disciple makers. And, and as we have been going through the book of Hebrews, today we're wrapping up our series in the book of Hebrews. We've been saying that Jesus is better, that Jesus is a, a better savior, that he's a better sacrifice, that he's a better high priest. And, and because he's better, then he calls us to a better way of living. We are called to a healthy, beyond our ability kind of living, the kind of, of living that requires a faith that we've been singing about this morning. And so as we wrap up our session, uh, our series in the Hebrews, let's go to the very last chapter. And I want to start our day today. We're going to look at several passages from chapter 13, but I want us to go first to verse 18 of Hebrews 13. And the Bible reads like this, pray for us, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So the writer and whoever, whomever he's with is saying, pray for us, we have a clear conscience, we, we want you to know that, that we are okay, that if the Lord were to come today, if we had to show up before the throne of God today, that there's nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. That's a good thing, right? That's, that's a good way to be in your spiritual life. You say, I have a clear conscience. That's, that's, there's no unconfessed sin. There's nothing to hide. And then it says, and we want to live honorably in every way. And, and what he's saying is, look, we, this is our desire. This is what we're striving for. And we want the same thing for you. Because of what Jesus did, we get to live honorably in any, every way. And we get to challenge you to live honorably 
in every way, to live as healthy disciples of Jesus, to live in a better way. That means to live lovingly, to live with integrity, to live by grace. It means to honor God with your character, to honor God with your relationships, to honor God with your service. And so as we come to chapter 13 of Hebrews, we're going to see a list of things, very practical ways in which we can do this, uh, ways that we can live honorably, ways in which we can tell if we are healthy disciples. I, you can think of it as a diagnostic tool. Think of it as, as spiritual lab work that you are taking and you're trying to find out how you are doing in each of those areas. And so I'm going to mention seven that, that come out of the passage and uh, I'm going to try to go through them quickly. I'm used to doing three points, not seven. So bear with me. The first one is love people. It shouldn't surprise us that one of the first signs of spiritual health is love for others. Uh, that, that when we have experienced the love of God, that we would love others. So verse 1 of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, uh, go there with me. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The greatest evidence in our lives that Jesus is our Lord is our love for one another. When you've experienced the love of God in your life, this incredible, indescribable, powerful love that has transformed you, you become a vehicle of that love to others. So, uh, so, so you show it. Some of you may have seen this uh, little league uh, video that went viral this week of a little boy getting hit in the head by the pitcher. Did you see that? If, if you didn't, let me show it to you because I think this is a great example of what we're talking about. Here it is. That's awesome. Wow, that is a tough kid right there. This is really cool because as a pitcher, Bubs looks shaken up right now because of what he did. And look at Zay Jarvis. This is such great sportsmanship. He wants him to know that it's okay, that he'll be fine. Hey, bro. Look at, look at me. Look at me. You're all right. Amazing. You're all right. Look at me. Hey, look. look. What a stud right there. Zay Jarvis. At that moment, compassion became more important than competition. They interviewed this little boy that got hit in the head and felt the urge to go hug the pitcher who was really struggling because of, of what he had done. Uh, they interviewed him afterwards and they said, why did you do that? He said, because I wanted to show him the love of Jesus. I asked myself, what would Jesus do? And then I decided that's what I needed to do. And, and I thought, you know, it, it was celebrated and he went viral because it's extraordinary. But I think in the Christian life, it should be ordinary. 
In the Christian life, loving one another should be the most natural, normal thing. We should, we should do that. It's more important to love one another than a lot of the things that we fight about and that we argue about. That's why, for me, it's so heartbreaking to see uh, Christians who, who are mean-spirited and, and, and who speak uh, in, in, in angry ways and have vicious talk. And the love of God does not flow from their, from their mouth. They're trying to talk about values and doctrines and beliefs and all those things that may be important, but not as important as loving people. The gospel calls us to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so first diagnostic tool that we need as healthy disciples is, are we loving others? Is that evident in our lives? And then secondly, serve the needy. It's closely related to loving others, but, but a specific uh, way to show our love to those who are needy. Our, our love for one another is within the family of God, but serving the needy goes beyond just the family of God. And the scriptures provide us with two examples of the way that we can lovingly serve the needy. And they are found in verse 2 and 3. It reads like this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by, doing, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. You may know that that we have a ministry here at Calvary that we call the 13-2 initiative. And the reason we call it 13-2 is because straight out of this verse, Hebrews 13-2. We, we believe in this ministry that it is a scriptural mandate to welcome the stranger. That, that the Bible calls Christians to, to live above and beyond, and it says we should be welcoming people. And so it is our ministry to, to immigrants, our ministry to internationals grows out of that of being a welcoming people. And the Bible says that when we do it, he says, you, you know, if you practice, you never know when you might be welcoming angels. What, what a great thing that is, to think of, of the fact that as a welcoming people, sometimes we might be literally welcoming angels. And then he talks about uh, prisoners, about remembering those in prison. And it's most likely fellow believers in the first century who were in prison for their beliefs. And, and the writer tells them, remember them, feel their suffering, empathize with them, pray for them, care about them. I'm so thankful for uh, Marty Moore. He's a member of our church, and you probably have greeted him if you come through those doors over there. He, he's a greeter, and he loves to welcome people. Uh, but one of the things that he loves to do is he loves to go to the prisons on Mondays. He, he goes and visits the, the prisons and he shows God's love to the inmates. He talks to them about God's love. He, he shares his testimony. He, he cares about their needs and he walks with them. If they make a commitment with, to Christ, he, he, he walks with them so that they can grow spiritually. Sometimes he's even helped them when they've been released from jail to make a transition to, to everyday life. Those are ways in which we show that we are healthy disciples, that we are living in a better way, welcoming the stranger, uh, visiting the prisoner. Those are examples. There are other ways. If you're a foster parent, that's a way to do it. If, if you work in our food pantry, bread of life, uh, giving food to those who need uh, food assistance. If, if you uh, sponsor a child in the Philippines, then, then you're doing that in small ways, in big ways, serving the needy 
is a characteristic of healthy disciples. And so we, we ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? James 1.27 says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So many religious people argue about all kinds of things, theology and philosophy and politics and values and beliefs and all those things. But the Bible tells us that what God really looks at is, are you taking care of the needy and are you living in a holy way? I'm not saying doctrine and theology don't matter. I'm just saying if you have all the right theology and all the right doctrine, but you're not caring for the needy, you're not living in a holy way, it doesn't really matter what you believe because your beliefs ought to change the way that you live. So you ask yourself today, how are you doing in the area of serving the needy? How am I loving my neighbor? And then the third thing that the chapter gives us is to honor marriage, to be faithful in marriage. Marriage is a, a sacred gift from God. And we live in a world that either devalues or redefines marriage. Sexual activity outside the marriage relationship is accepted and even celebrated without any regard for this gift of God called marriage. The world wants all of the benefits of marriage without any of the commitment and the responsibility of marriage. But it doesn't work that way because that's not the way God designed it. He's the author of love. He's the author of marriage. He's the author of sex. And, and it only works well when we do it his way. And that's why we're reminded today of God's design in verse 4. It says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The issue of immorality is not a modern problem. Beyonce didn't invent it. She thinks that, that freedom has to do with, with a girl making her body the object of, of desire by others. That's not freedom. That's enslavement. Freedom is, is to, to know that your body belongs to God and that he's freed you up to be, become all that he wants you to be. Sexual immorality has been present, has existed for millennia. That's why the Bible addresses it. It's interesting. This is one of the few things that was addressed in chapter 12 and it's repeated again in chapter 13. Because it doesn't matter how long sinful humanity has struggled with sexual immorality, the Bible says that God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That sooner or later, they will reap the consequences of their unfaithfulness. So those of us that have been redeemed by Christ, those of us that know the better Savior and are committed to a better way of living, then should honor marriage. And there's a lot of things that we could say about marriage, but this is not a marriage conference. I think what specifically the passage addresses is faithfulness in marriage, the sexual faithfulness in marriage, that we should strive for that, that we should keep the, the marriage bed pure. Uh, it's what it's saying here. And faithfulness in marriage doesn't just happen. It is something you cultivate. In a marriage relationship, you, you pray together. You, you, you speak love to one another in words and actions. Don't be like the husband whose wife said, you haven't told me I love you in a long time. And he says, I told you last year and I haven't changed my mind. You know, you need to keep saying it. You need to keep showing it. You need to be, keep being romantic. You need to keep going out on dates. My wife and I are empty nesters. We get to be in the house a lot. We get to be together a lot. And I'm thankful for that. But we still make it a point to go out on dates. To, to sit across the table and look at each other in the eyes 
and, and, and to speak to each other in ways that cultivate our romance. That's the way that you honor marriage. That's the way that, that you encourage your marriage and, and, and that you keep it faithful. And then the fourth thing that the passage mentions here is avoid greed. We need to grow in our love and our love for God. We need to grow in our love for our neighbor. We need to grow in our love for one another. We need to grow in our love for our spouse. We need to grow in our love for the church. The one place where you don't need to grow in love is in your love of money. Look at verse five. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. There are some who misquote the Bible in saying that money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the Bible says. There's no place in the Bible where it says that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, the way that God desires is that we would love people and use money. But some people have got caught in loving money and using people. And so we are reminded here to change it, to remember that money is a tool. We need it. We need money to feed our family. We need money to, to pay our mortgage. We need money to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Money is a means that we help others, that we support the work of God. The problem is when we, instead of using money, we love money. We, we give money the place that belongs to God. It becomes a God. It becomes the Lord of our lives. And Jesus said that we can't have two lords, that we cannot have two masters. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, either Christ is your Lord or money is your Lord. You can't have them both as lords. You need to decide who you're serving and who's serving you. If you serve Christ, then don't serve money, let money serve you. As administrators of the material possessions, of the material wealth that God has given us, we should use our money to provide for our families, to prepare for the future, to be generous with those who are needy, to be generous with God's work. There's nothing wrong with growing your wealth. There's nothing wrong with being good administrators and, and multiplying what God has given you. In fact, the scripture encourages that. But what it tells us here is to avoid greed. And how do you do that? Well, the, the two hints that we get here is one is be content. Gratefulness goes a long ways. When you thank God for what you have, when you look at what he's already given you, then you can avoid greed. And the other one is when you trust God. There's a promise here that the scripture gives us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So you have a choice. You're either trusting in money you're either trusting in the stock market, how did that go the last six months? Or you're trusting God to provide for you regardless of what happens, regardless of the gas prices at the pump, regardless of, of, of what your check stub says, that God is the one who can multiply it, that God is the one who can provide, and that our hearts should be fully devoted to him rather than loving money. There are many areas in our lives that we struggle. I struggle with multiple areas in my life. I don't think that I struggle with greed, but once in a while it does rear its head. 
Once in a while, I, I start looking at what others have and why do they drive that car? How do they have that house? How do they get the vacation there? And, and you begin to, to think about those things and, and it's easy to get distracted and get off track and just be happy with what, what, what God has given us. And then the fifth thing that we are given here is respect for our spiritual leaders. Another evidence of the better way of life that Jesus calls us to is a respect for spiritual leaders. Look at verse 7. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Those spiritual leaders, whether they're pastors, preachers, teachers who have taught us God's word are, are worthy of honor and respect. To remember them means to think of them with esteem, to, to pray for them, to be supportive of them. And honoring our spiritual leaders includes imitating their faith. Spiritual leaders that are worthy of respect are not just the ones that teach well or preach well, are the ones that live well. And, and that's important to notice here. It's not just people that, that can give a good sermon. It's people who, who love others, who, who help the needy, who honor marriage, who avoid greed. These are the kind of leaders that, that are worthy of imitating. And that's so important today because we live in a culture of celebrity pastors. People, people have handpicked a few great communicators that, that we can watch on the internet or on YouTube and and we put them on pedestals and we admire them and we buy their merch and, and we do all those things. And, and sometimes there's absolutely no accountability. And they've been placed in a place where they have more fame and more admiration and more power and more money than any human can handle. And then it is heartbreaking to see them stumble and fall. And sometimes we've contributed to that because we've not learned to, yes, honor our leaders, but keep them accountable. There are, there, are, there are leaders who are, are good communicators, but they're not loving others. They're not helping the needy. They're not honoring marriage. They're, they're not avoiding greed. They're abusing their power, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, money abuse. Those don't need to be honored. They need to be called into account. But the Bible tells us here the kind of leaders that, that we are to honor are those who live well as much as they communicate well. Look at, at verse 17 with me. It reads like this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The Bible says the spiritual leaders have the responsibility to care for the congregation to pray, to, to be aware, to, to encourage, to, to listen, to, uh, to counsel, to, to walk with people so that their spiritual lives are, are directed toward Christ. And the spiritual leaders will give an account to God for that. There's an accountability for that kind of responsibility. And that when people are receptive to that leadership, when people are receptive to that care, when people are receptive to God's word, that it gives joy to the spiritual leaders. That it brings joy to them because they see how God is at work. But the opposite is, is that people who, who are not receptive, people who, who go against spiritual leaders, then they can 
cause ministry to be a burden is what the Bible says. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you don't gather, you scatter. And the Bible says, look, either you're a joy to spiritual leaders or you might be a burden. If you're a joy, there's blessing in that. But if you're a burden, the blessing is taken away. And it's important that we pay attention. There was one occasion, uh, a wife that was that called her husband who was in bed and says, honey, you need to get up. It's Sunday and, and it's time to go to church. You need to get ready. And, and he was exhausted. He was tired. He said, look, I, I'm so tired. I really don't want to go to church today. I want to stay in bed. I want to sleep. And, and she said, no, that's not an option. She said, you need to get up. You need to get ready. We need to go to church. And, uh, and she left the room to keep getting ready. And when she came back, he was still in bed. He was still asleep. And, and she says, hey, honey, you need to get up. We're going to be late. He said, I don't want to go to church. People at church are mean. They say mean things. They, they say mean things to me. In fact, the other day I was walking down the hall and around uh, the corner there were people who were talking about me. Don't make me go there. I don't want to go to church. And she said, look, that's not an excuse. You need to get ready. We need to go. And he said, give me one good reason why I should go. And she said, because you're the pastor and they're expecting you to show up. I thought, well, poor guy, poor guy. And, and so we, we must ask ourselves, are, are, we, are we contributing to the joy of those who are our spiritual leaders or are we a burden to them? I am so happy to say to you with all, with all honesty that for me as lead pastor here at Calvary, it is a joy to serve you. You have made ministry a joy. And I think a lot of our pastoral team, if not all of them, would agree with me that, that, that you are a blessing and you make ministry worth it. We, we are so thankful for that. There may be one or two people that once in a while give us grief, but that's just part of it, right? I, I think of people like that, like God's sandpaper. They're, they're rough, but God is using them to smooth our rough edges as well. And the sixth thing that we are told here a healthy disciple should display is to grow in grace. This better way of life demands that we grow. We have been saved. We have been forgiven. We have been born into the family of God, but we're not expected to stay spiritual babies. We don't need to be spiritual toddlers either. We, we need to keep growing. When you stop growing spiritually, you start dying. Verse 9 of Hebrews 13 says the following. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. The healthy disciple needs to be mature in the faith so that he's not carried away by strange doctrine. She needs to know what she believes and why. That's important. That comes with growth. That comes with maturity. But notice that this kind of spiritual maturity that the Bible talks about here is not one that we work in our own effort. But it is something that comes by grace. It is not about keeping rules and rituals, ceremonial laws. But it is about letting grace transform us. Peter tells us, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What does that mean? Growing in grace means that you depend on Christ. 
to do the transformation in your life. That, that you believe that nothing is impossible for God. That he can change that area of your life that, that you can't change, that you struggle with, that, that you keep having failure and, and you fall in your face every time and you want to change it and you can't change it because you, you're not strong enough on your own and so you depend on the grace of Christ. It is obedient faith that, that relies on him. We submit to him. All of these things that we've mentioned, loving others, serving the needy, honoring your marriage, avoiding greed, respecting our spiritual leaders, all of those things can be done by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so I must ask myself, am I growing spiritually? Am I any, any more mature today than I was last year? Am I living the Christian life in my own effort? Am I just trying to be a good Christian, a good church-going person? Or am I living in a supernatural way where the power of God is at work in my life, where I'm stepping into these oceans that require faith that I can't walk on myself? John Newton was a pastor in England, and uh, he was a former slave ship owner. And, and God saved him, and he wrote that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. And this is what he said. He says, I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. Man, what a great testimony that is. And, and what would it be like if I could say that today? I'm, I'm still not the man that I'm going to be. I'm still not the person that Christ is going to make me in the future, but thank God I'm not the same as I was last year. I'm not the same as I was three months ago. By the grace of God, he's working in me to make me more like him. And seventh and final, we have to offer praise continually. Now that the sacrificial system is obsolete, that we don't need to offer animal sacrifices, our worship consists of praise. Rather than the sacrifice of animals, we offer the sacrifice of praise. Look at verse 15 of our chapter 13. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others with such sacrifices God is well pleased. That's why we gather when we worship together here. We offer our praise to God. In the Old Testament, the people of God would show up with animal sacrifices and they would offer them on the altar. Now in the New Testament, the people of God show up and we offer the sacrifice of praise, of hearts that are grateful, of hearts that are worshipful in the altar of our hearts, that we do it when we gather and we do it when we scatter, when we live Monday through Saturday, praising his name with our lips, doing good things with our hands, walking where God wants us to walk. Christ offered himself at the cross completely. And so worship for us is to offer ourselves completely back to him. Praise from our lips, confession of his name, service with our hands, love that is tangible, and feet that walk where he has asked us to walk, that stay in step with him. Christ offered himself as the better sacrifice, and it meant death. We offer ourselves 
as a better way of living. And it means life. And the wonderful thing about that is that that new life, that better way of living is powered by Jesus. And you may think, well, I, I can't do that. As you think about these seven things that we've mentioned, this diagnostic tool, if you would, of your spiritual health, you may say, well, that's a hard area for me. And I may say to you, it is for me too. But it is by the power of God. It is his transforming power at work in you that can lift you up and live in that better way. That's exactly what our benediction says at the, almost at the end of the chapter, verse 20, where it says, And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is better because he obtained our salvation. Jesus is better because he opened the way for us to be in the presence of the Holy of Holies. Jesus is better because he's the better sacrifice, the better high priest, the better tabernacle. And because he is better and supreme, then our way of living should be supernatural. I hope that this series on the book of Hebrews has been a blessing to you. I hope that it has encouraged you to remind to, to remember what a wonderful salvation we have. All the intricacies, all the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of the wonderful things that Christ has done for us. But I hope that when you walk away today, you don't just feel good about your salvation, but you allow God to transform you. That that power at the cross, that that power at the empty tomb, that that power from the throne of God would be at work in you to transform you to live in a better way in your physical, my physical health, I know I, I need to work on some things. In my spiritual life, I need to work on some things. What are you going to let God work in today? Let's stand together. Father, as we come today, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Jesus who is better. What a great journey has been to go through 13 chapters of the letter of Hebrews and discover your love, your wisdom, your redemptive work. And now to come to the conclusion of it and to be called to live in a way that's transformed by your grace. So today, out of these seven things that we've mentioned, God, that's straight out of the scriptures, Help us to pick the one that we want you to work on this week. Is it loving others? Is it serving the needy? Is it honoring our marriage? Is it avoiding greed? Is it respecting our spiritual leaders? Is it growing in grace? Is it offering praise continually? Whatever it is, help us make a commitment to obey you in that this week. And if there's someone who doesn't know you, who needs to come to Christ right now, allow them to be drawn by your Holy Spirit to forgiveness and eternal life. Those that want to follow you in believer's baptism or want to join our fellowship, whatever the commitment is, allow your spirit to work. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.